Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 7. And while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. And so you can make your way to our room back in the uh, back of the room there. The uh, teacher volunteers will be there to greet you at the door. And while they're uh, making their way there, as I said, you can be turning to Hebrews, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, chapter 7. As we continue our way through this letter, uh, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 22 this morning. Hebrews 7 verses 11 through 22. So let me read our passage for us and then we will pause for a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews chapter 7 beginning in verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be able to gather together this morning as your people under the truth of your word. It is a privilege to be here. It is a privilege bought by the blood of Christ on the cross. And so, Father, we confess together that we come here this morning with our only hope being in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we say every week, Father, we are thankful that because of the death of Christ in our place, that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken our hearts, to open our blind eyes, to see the glories of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue that work within us this morning through the truth of your word. That by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, you would be at work in us, showing us more and more of the glory of Jesus Christ and our desperate need for him. Father, I pray that your word this morning would be at work in us, helping us to see the glories of Jesus Christ, helping us to see the desperation of our state apart from him, helping us to see all that he has accomplished for us so that we could, in fact, draw near to you. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that, that you would draw us to yourself this morning by the finished work of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me as I preach this morning, that you would guard my words, allow me to say only what is true of you and what is true of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the single, the the, the greatest single issue facing humanity, in spite of what the cable news stations may tell you, the greatest issue facing humanity is not climate change, It's not political unrest. It's not nuclear war. It's not 
a pandemic, past, present, or future, the greatest single issue facing humanity is that our relationship with the sovereign creator and king has been broken and destroyed by our sin. That is the greatest issue facing humanity. Our sin and our selfishness and our pride and our arrogance, our greed, our perversion places us under the wrath and condemnation of the one true God, the great king and righteous judge of the universe. And if our sin is not dealt with, we face an eternity of wrath and condemnation. Therefore, that is the greatest issue facing humanity. Yet, yet in spite of what we deserve, yet in spite of the reality that because of our sin, we deserve wrath and condemnation every step of the way throughout history, especially biblical history, as we read the Old Testament, God has shown overwhelming mercy and grace and patience to an undeserving people. He raised up, if you read the Old Testament, he raised up deliverers, graciously gave his people the law and provision for mercy and forgiveness. He raised up judge after judge to rescue his people when they called out to him. He raised up prophets to warn them and to call his people to repentance. And even when it seemed that God's people, the people of Israel, had reached the end of the rope and God had to raise up a foreign army to come in and to invade them and to take over their land and rip them out of the promised land and exile them when it seemed that it should have been God's patience had worn out, his patience had not yet worn out. And even there in a foreign land, when they cried out to him, he raised up another foreign king who allowed his people to return and provided protection for them to get there, and paid for the rebuilding of the temple. Mercy and grace upon mercy and grace. You see, we often, and you hear it all the time, right? There's this difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. The Old Testament God is a God of wrath and punishment, and that's somehow different from how God portrays himself in the New Testament. But what I want you to hear this morning, what I want to remind us of this morning, is that what we ought to see in the Old Testament is that God is a God of unimaginable patience and second chances and mercy and long-suffering and grace. For example, just to share a specific example. So in my personal time in the Word, in, in God's Word, in the Scriptures right now, I'm in Ezekiel. And uh, a few days ago, I was in Ezekiel chapter 20. And uh, this is at a point where, the, the, the point where I just mentioned, right in Ezekiel, God's people are at the end of the rope. The exile is happening. Uh, they, they are a terrible, rebellious people. And God is telling Ezekiel to remind them that this isn't just a recent occurrence, that their history has been one of rebellion after rebellion and wickedness upon wickedness. And he tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 20, he says, go remind them of the rebellion of their fathers. And he starts with their time in the land of Egypt. And this is something we don't often think about, right? We think about how after they were rescued from Egypt, miraculously, right, the plagues came upon God powerfully and miraculously rescued his people, brought them out. They crossed the Red Sea. He, he destroyed the Egyptian army and Pharaoh and brought them into safety. And then they started grumbling and complaining because they didn't have water, they didn't have food, and on and on and on. But their rebellion didn't start after their rescue. Even in the land of Egypt, in the land of Egypt, they were worshiping idols. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 4 through 8, listen to this. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. 
On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now just pause there before I finish reading the last verse of this passage in Ezekiel 20. So God's people are enslaved in Egypt, worshiping idols. And he sends people to say, cast away these idols from you. But verse 8 says, of Ezekiel 20, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. But yet, what, what happens? What's the story? God rescues them anyway. Right? It's, it's an overwhelming story of God's mercy and patience and grace to a rebellious people who weren't just doing little sins, people who were worshiping literal idols of another nation, false gods, and yet, yet God was going to get glory for his name. And he rescued his people anyway. You see, the story of the Old Testament is one of ongoing, almost unbelievable mercy and grace. Right? As we read the Old Testament, I think sometimes we take it for granted and we just kind of think, okay, yeah, they messed up. They messed up again. They're going to get another chance. They messed up again. They're going to get another chance. Okay, God's going to give them another chance. God's going to give them another chance. And yes, he brings punishment. But mercy is always coming behind it. And it's so easy to focus on the wrath and the condemnation and the punishment and to forget the guaranteed grace and mercy that comes on the other side. We take it for granted. And you see, in the same way, even as we read this passage this morning, I think it's easy to take it for granted. And we can get into the details and into the minutia, which we will, but we can miss the bigger picture of the mercy and grace that's evident, even in the big picture, the, the, the grace and mercy that I would say is simply assumed in verses 11 through 22. And so I want us to be sure that we're overwhelmed by God's mercy and grace. Instead of just assuming it, I want to point it out and I want to be sure that we see it. And then we will dive into the details. So, so right there in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11, the author of Hebrews said, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? And what I want to be sure we don't rush past is to be sure that we understand that God was under no obligation to you or to me to provide a better way. Right? We can take that for granted, right? We read this passage. Look, under the Levitical priesthood, it became clear that perfection was not attainable. And yet, he brings another priest. He brings another way. Right? We don't deserve that. And we should not take it for granted that he has provided a better way and a better hope and a better covenant. He would have been, God would have been perfectly just and righteous and would have remained the righteous judge and king and creator in the universe if he would have let us remain in our failure to reach perfection by means of his law and the Levitical priesthood. But because our God is a God of mercy and patience and long-suffering and grace, he brought a better hope to you and to me. So let's not rush past what's assumed in this passage. We were not owed it, but he gave it to us anyway because of who he is. 
and because of the promises that he has made to us. Even in Genesis 3, as we mentioned last week, when he said he would crush the head of Satan and bring victory for his people through a redeeming Messiah. Therefore, when perfection was not attainable by one priesthood, he saw fit to introduce another. And that is the priesthood through Jesus in the line of Melchizedek. And therefore, by the grace of God, a new priesthood brings a better hope. So what I simply want to do is walk through this passage together with you and help us see together the the unfolding of the grace of God that the author of Hebrews has for us that leads us to a better hope in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is making a simple three-step argument. So we're going to walk through each step of that argument and then in the end see the better hope we have in Christ. So, So number one, step one, if a new priesthood arrives then perfection by law has failed. That's step one, right? If a new priesthood arrives, then perfection by law has failed. Step two, Jesus' arrival marks a change in the priesthood. Jesus' arrival marks a change in the priesthood. And then step number three, which is the final step, therefore, we now have a better hope in Christ. So let's just take those one at a time. Step number one. If a new priesthood arrives, then perfection by law has failed. Look there again with me at verses 11 and 12. I know we've read it a few times. Let's read it again. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now the argument that the author of Hebrews is making here makes clear to us that he's actually from the American South. Because the argument he's making is essentially this. If it ain't broke, you don't fix it. Right? And he's saying... God fixed something, which means it must have been broken. That's the argument he's making, right? Something must have been broken if God had to fix it with another priest. That's his argument. That's what he's stating in verse 11. And the rest of this passage is built on proving and expanding on this basic argument. So, so let's dig in here in verse 11. He's, he's asking a rhetorical question, right? A rhetorical question is, is an argumentation. It's a question that assumes we're all going to agree on the answer. And so he's saying, look, if there had been a way to be perfect through the Levitical priesthood, if, if that was possible, then why, here comes the question, why then would God, what further need would there have been for another priest to come? And of course, the answer we're all supposed to agree on is, well, that must mean that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that it wasn't possible to attain perfection that way. And he says, look, and he just adds this basic statement in verse 12 that says, look, here's just a fact. When there's a change in the priesthood, there's a necessarily a change in the law as well. So the fact that a new priest has arrived means that the, this old Levitical law, this old Levitical priesthood must change. It must be different when a new priest arrives. <clears throat> you see, the author is, once again, as we've said in weeks past, he's continuing to look at Psalm 110. Right? In many ways, you could argue that uh, uh, chapter 6, chapter 7 is just a long extended meditation by the author of Hebrews on Psalm 110. Psalm 110 was a well-known messianic psalm, right? It, it pointed to this coming king who would rule over his enemies. But yet in the midst of Psalm 110, it also mentions this priest who would come in the likeness of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews is is reading Psalm 110. He's reading about this coming Messiah King who's going to rule. But then he comes to Psalm 110 verse 4, as we've mentioned many times over the past few weeks. And Psalm 110 verse 4 says that this coming Messiah is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's looking, the author is looking at Psalm 110 and he says, look, if that's true, then 
When the arrival of the Messiah comes, it means also a new priesthood is going to come. And when that happens, then it says something about the Levitical priesthood that came before. That's the argument that he's making based on Psalm 110. You see, the, even the order of Scripture is important because Psalm 110 comes after the institution of the Levitical priesthood. Right? After the law is given, after the Levitical priesthood has been put into action... Psalm 110 comes and God says, look, I'm going to bring a Messiah who's going to be another priest, a different priest after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews looks hard at Psalm 110 and he says, why in the world does there need to be a different priesthood? Why is that necessary? God's already given us one. Why does there need to be another one when the Messiah comes? And he concludes the only reason that would be necessary is if the Levitical priesthood was never able to bring God's people to perfection. If that law of the Levitical priesthood would have been able to do that, there wouldn't have been a need for another one. But now that another priest has come forth, it becomes crystal clear. It proves that perfection was not attainable through the sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood. So what does the author mean by perfection? What does he mean when he says in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable? Well, I think the easiest way to define this concept of perfection that the author is talking about here is to say that he's, he's referring to attaining whatever is necessary to draw near to God. That's what perfection would be. Whatever is necessary to draw near to God. That's the perfection he's talking about. And I don't even think it necessarily means uh, becoming 100% sinless, right? Under the Old Testament law, under the Levitical priesthood itself, the presence of sin was assumed. It was assumed people would struggle with sin that it would be there, but it provided a way to pursue forgiveness, right? If you read the giving of the law, especially the sections on the sacrificial system, the, the, the repeated mantra at the end of every command is you, when you sin, you repent of that sin, you bring forward a sacrifice, a physical sacrifice representing the repentance of your heart, and you bring it before the priest. This physical sacrifice is a plea for forgiveness, and the law says time after time after time, and their sins will be forgiven. Their sins will be forgiven. Their sins will be forgiven. God provided a way for sin to be forgiven through the sacrificial system, through that act of faith of bringing forward a sacrifice representing the repentance of one's heart. The problem is that Israel failed to even keep the most basic requirements of the law. Even simple commands like, don't make idols. Right? And they're out here carving idols out of wood. And Isaiah kind of mocks them. He says they, they take half of it and they burn it and cook their dinner over it. And they take the other half and make it into an image and fall down on the ground and worship it. When they created it with their own hands. Right? They're, they're making idols. They, they're, they're, not ha they're having other gods before him. Right? It's, it's unbelievable how wicked and rebellious they were. They're brought into the promised land. And instead of sacrificing where God told them to, to him, they go to the high places and they sacrifice to the gods of the land. And king after king after king after king says he did not remove the high places. They're just in continuous rebellion against him. They treated the poor and the widows and the orphans with contempt. They were greedy and they were selfish. In fact, they rarely observed the Passover, maybe at the very, very beginning of Israel's history, but very soon after that, right? The Passover was supposed to be this grand and glorious remembrance of how God delivered them from Egypt, right? Powerfully and miraculously. And yet by the time you get to King Josiah, they don't even know what the Passover is. 
right? Some people find the scrolls, they find the scriptures under the reign of Josiah, and they're reading it, and they're like, what is this Passover thing? So Josiah tries to reinstitute it. You see, even though the law provided a, fa- a path to forgiveness, it was ignored and it was cast aside. You see, instead of bringing about transformation and restoration, the law simply revealed how wicked the human heart is. No amount, no amount of sacrifice or law could change the human heart and compel God's people to put sin to death in their life and pursue righteousness. That's why the story of the Old Testament is one of continual failure on the part of the people of God. It is a consistent theme of the Old Testament that God's people pursued their own desires, they worship idols and false gods instead of obedience to the one true God. Every step of the way that was true of Israel. And it did not matter how many prophets God brought to warn them. It didn't matter how many times he put the law in front of them. They continually rebelled against it over and over and over and over again. They could not attain perfection. They could not draw near to God because of the sinfulness and the wickedness of their hearts. Even those who tried, even those who tried to pursue obedience to the law, in the end, found that it could not bring about perfection and righteousness in them. Just just listen to the Apostle Paul's recounting of his life as a Jew, as a Hebrew, from Philippians chapter 3. So this is a reminder, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the large majority of our New Testament, was, was a Jew. And this is what he said, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, look, the righteousness that I thought I achieved in the law, the blamelessness that I thought I had achieved by my own personal pursuit of obedience to the law did not achieve the righteousness that God demands. And it can only be found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And so the author of Hebrews is simply saying what Paul just said, what we just read in Philippians, is that the law could not bring him to perfection. And the author of Hebrews is saying the reason we know that is because a new priest has arrived. And so that brings us to step two of the argument that the author of Hebrews is making, that Jesus' arrival marks the change in the priesthood. That now Jesus has come, right? He's, the, the arrival of Jesus as priest proves the failure of the Levitical priesthood to bring us to perfection. So he wants to prove that Jesus is this new priest, and he does that in verses 13 through 17. It's a simple objective in verses 13 through 17. He wants to prove that Jesus is of a new priesthood and not the the, the line of Aaron, the line of Levi. That's what he's seeking to prove in verses 13 through 17. And not to make all this argument complicated, but he does that in two steps, all right? See, this sub-argument that he's making, that Jesus is a new priest, 
He's going to make two arguments about that, okay? Number one, he reminds us that Jesus did not belong to the tribe of Levi. Right, you see that there in verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken, namely Jesus, the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, we talked about this last week, right? The, the, the uh, authors of the Gospels, specifically Matthew and Luke, go to great lengths to give the genealogy of Jesus to prove that according to his earthly lineage, Jesus came from the, from the tribe of Judah, right? That he could be the lion from the tribe of Judah, the king who is to come. That's Jesus's tribe. That's who he is as a man in his line of descent as a Jew. And the author of Hebrews says there in verse 13 that, that no one has ever served at the altar, meaning no one has ever been a priest who came from Judah. In fact, it would be against God's law for someone from the tribe of Judah to serve at the altar. You had to be a Levite to serve as a priest. Period. End of story. And as we talked about last week, if you couldn't prove it, you couldn't serve. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. And Moses, in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, never said anything about priests coming from the tribe of Judah. So that's argument number one, that a new priest has arrived in Jesus. That's, that's kind of statement number one, that, that, okay, so Jesus is a priest, but he's from Judah. So there's something different about that. It's not the Levitical priesthood anymore because he is from the tribe of Judah, but not only that, verse 15 says it becomes even more evident. So he's going to pile on the evidence here and make a second statement. He says in verse 15, it becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So it's not just that Jesus was a priest from the tribe of Judah. It's also who he, the line of priests that he actually belongs to. And he belongs to the line of Melchizedek. He arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So Paul's there. So the, the tribe of Levi, the way in the Old Testament law that you became a priest was simply you were born into it. If you were born in the tribe of Levi, you could be a priest. So by, by, the, uh, by legal requirement, you could be a priest. So that's what he's saying there. Legal requirement concerning bodily descent. But he's saying, look, that's not how the order of Melchizedek works. That's not how Jesus was able to become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. How is Jesus able to become a priest? By the power of an indestructible life. So what in the world does that mean? Right? What does it mean that Jesus was able to become priest by the power of an indestructible life. Well, I remind you, again, because the author of Hebrews is going to quote it in verse 17, he's just continuing to look at Psalm 110. And when he reads Psalm 110, he reads what's quoted here in verse 17. He knows that Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus, and it's witnessed of him, meaning of Jesus, Psalm 110 says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So when the author of Hebrews reads that, he's saying, look, whoever this priest is who's going to come is going to be a priest forever. Now, how is that possible, right? Every other priest in the history of the world has what? Died. But yet this guy who's coming, who's going to be the king from the tribe of Judah, who's going to rule over his enemies, who's going to be a priest, is going to be a priest forever with no end. How is that possible? It is only possible if a priest comes who has the power of an indestructible life. So when someone arrives who's indestructible, guess what we know? He's the priest we've been waiting for. 
And so, what do we know of Jesus Christ? We know that he came in the flesh and he lived a perfect, spotless life, never once rebelling against his father. He was the perfect, righteous lamb. And we know that he willingly laid down his life on the cross, that he allowed himself to be arrested and tortured. He allowed himself to have nails driven through his hands and through his feet and to hang on the cross and to suffocate to death. But we also know that that wasn't the worst of it, that he willingly took on the wrath of God the Father. He took on the wrath of God in our place because we deserved his wrath, right? All who trust in Christ, we deserved it, but Jesus took it in our place on the cross and he died. He was killed And they took him off the cross and they laid him in the tomb for dead. But praise be to God, right? Three days later, the grave could not hold the author of life. He victoriously rose from the grave to live forever. And Jesus, through the power of his resurrection, has proven that he is the one with an indestructible life. And by the power of an indestructible life, Christ now sits in the line of Melchizedek and he is able to be a priest forever. And so the author of Hebrews says, look, you have a priest from Judah. That means it's something different than the Le Levitical priesthood. And not only that, Jesus has an indestructible life, which means he's after the order of Melchizedek. So something is up. God is doing something when Jesus has arrived, the author of Hebrews says to us. Something has changed. The ground is shifting. Something is happening when he brings forward another priest. Why did he bring forward another priest? Because perfection and the ability to draw near to God was not possible through the Levitical priesthood. So then, how do we draw near to God? And that brings us to the final step in the author's argument. Number three, we now have a better hope in Jesus Christ. We now have a better hope in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 18 through 22 with me. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of this weakness and uselessness. Again, this is pointing back to what we read in verse 11. A, a former commandment is now set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For because the law made nothing perfect. Now, let's pause here for a minute and be sure we understand what's meant when the author says that the law was weak and useless. Because that's... That's really strong language, right? Especially considering the high view of the law that Jesus himself had, right? Just listen in the Sermon on the Mount what Jesus says about the law. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't sound to me like Jesus thinks the law is weak and useless. So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he says that the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Well, it's important to remember that when he says that, he means that it's weak and useless in a specific way. What he's saying is it's, it's weak and useless as an instrument to pursue our own personal righteousness and perfection. If you're going to use the law, if you think you can use the law to make yourself righteous and perfect, then the law is useless. It's not going to get you there. But that doesn't mean it's useless altogether. So this is, a, this is very important for us to understand. For example, 
A number of years ago, we had a, a, a family who lived next to us who had a, a teenage daughter who would be, you know, as teenagers are, would be left home from time to time. And this one particular evening, uh, her mom had uh, had a commitment. Her mom was over an hour away, was, was not going to be able to get away from that commitment until late at night. And th- we have a knock on our door and the daughter comes over and she's locked herself out of her house. And she can't get into her house. And so uh, she's now, in that moment, if I would have said to her, look, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Just let me go get my house keys and I'll go let you in your house. Right? What, what would she say to me? What should she say to me? Your house keys are useless. Right? They're not going to do any good for this situation. Now, does that mean my house keys are useless altogether? No, it just means they're not going to get me in the door we need to get into. They're still going to get us in my house, hopefully. But they're not going to get us in the door to her house. Now, just so you know how the story ends, we got her back into her house. Uh, In that situation, it's really useful to know how to open a locked door with a stiff credit card. Don't ask me about my past. I'm just able to do it, okay? All right, no, in all seriousness, a police officer who was our neighbor taught me how to do it uh, because I locked myself out of my house and he popped the lock. I was like, I thought you were gonna come with some fancy thing and he pulls a credit card out and just hits it anyway. So we get her back in her house, okay? So she's safe. You don't have to worry about what happened that night. But here's the point. Here's the point. A key is useless if it's used for the wrong door. Right? And the law is useless if you use it for the wrong purpose. And if you're going to use the law to somehow think that you can use it to pursue righteousness, to somehow make yourself perfect, if you're going to use the law as a means to draw near to God, it is weak and useless. It will never get you there. On the other hand... It remains true that when the law is used for the right purposes, it accomplishes exactly what it was designed to accomplish. Right? So, for example, Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 27, Paul says to us, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Some translations render that word guardian, tutor. The law was our tutor. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, now that a new guardian, now that a new way has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All who have trusted in Christ have put on the righteousness of Christ. The law was our tutor. It was our guardian. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, Paul tells us that the law was meant to expose our sinfulness. It's to expose how rebellious we are because when we hear the law, our instinct, our gut is not, how can I obey it? Our instinct and our gut, according to Paul in Romans 7, is how can I rebel against it? And if you don't believe me, Just be a parent and give a rule, give a law. Guess what your kids are going to want to do? The opposite thing, right? That's just a reality. And it's not just true of kids. It's true of you and it's true of me. The law was meant to show us how wicked we really are. And therefore, it is weak and useless as a means to pursue perfection. Therefore, using the law as a means to approach God and draw near to him must now be set aside because a new priest is on the scene. And we now have a better hope a better hope through which we draw near to God. Do you see that there in verse 19? But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 
This is the better hope Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do. Do you hear that? God has done what the law could not do. Weakened by flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So how do we pursue perfection? How do we have a better hope? How do we draw near to God? By the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place and by the righteousness of his life and by the power of his indestructible life. That is how we draw near to God. You see, therefore, Jesus is our better hope. In him alone do we find our righteousness and our perfection. It could not be attained by our own efforts through the law. And praise be to God that this priesthood will never come to an end. It is forever and ever. It will never be superseded by another, which is why verses 20 through 22 are so important, that this priesthood of Jesus was not without an oath. Those who formerly, you see that there in verse 20, those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, this Jesus Christ, this Messiah that we have been waiting for was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. It will never change for all eternity. A trillion million years from now, we will be by God's grace in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus will still be our great high priest. So you can bank your life on Jesus Christ. And therefore, verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the guarantor, the surety of a better covenant. We can bank our lives, our eternal lives, on the righteous life of Jesus Christ. What is the, what is the surety of the guarantor? If you go into a covenant with someone, right, they, they put something to, to back up their word. They say, based on this thing, right, if you, if you sign a mortgage, the surety is the house you're living in. And if you don't pay your mortgage, guess what the bank gets? Your house. But the guarantee of this covenant is Jesus Christ himself. And the righteous life that he lived. And the death that he died in our place. And the resurrection in which he won victory over death. So listen, our response to this passage is fairly straightforward but eminently difficult. If you want to draw near to God, then you must stop looking to your own works and your own righteousness and your own morality. It is a dead-end path. There is no perfection by the works of the law. Instead, God says to us here in Hebrews that we have a better hope. That we draw near to God by looking to the gracious Son of God who has provided for us the righteousness and perfection that is required of us. Therefore, we draw near to God by pleading the blood of the cross and the power of the indestructible life of Jesus Christ. That's how we draw near to God. So every time we lean on our own works to win God's favor, every time we lean on our own works to think that we are, by our righteousness, earning entry into his presence, we are declaring that we don't need the glorious priesthood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's just listen to verse 11, which tells us that if perfection had been attainable that way, he would have never sent Jesus in the first place. But he sent Jesus to show us that we can't get to God through our own righteous works. We need a Savior to stand in our place. 
Therefore, let us remember what the author of Hebrews has already reminded us of in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May Jesus be the anchor of our soul because he is a better hope and the guarantee of the better covenant. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending Christ as our great high priest. Jesus, we praise you. We praise the power of your indestructible life. We praise you that the grave could not hold you, that it could not hold the author of life. It could not hold you through whom the universe was created, you for whom the universe was created. You are victorious over death, and by the power of your indestructible life, you are our great high priest forevermore. And Father, we are trusting in the oath that you have made that it will never change. That you swore it by an oath that Jesus will be our priest forever. We therefore don't have to question or wonder if things are going to change or if you're going to pull the rug out from under our feet. No, no, we find our eternal hope in Christ alone. And so Father, I pray that you would help all of us in this room to put to death any any thought or desire in our lives and hearts where we may think that we can earn our entry into your kingdom by our own works. Instead, let us turn our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the finished work of Christ that stands completed in our place. And may we plead the blood of Jesus and plead the perfect righteousness of his life. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.